Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy, leadership development told through the lens of Star Trek. Your host, Jeff Aiken, is a 20-year veteran of the public and private sectors in management and leadership. He specializes in helping people unlock their true potential and is a huge Star Trek fan. And now, here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today. We are learning more and more about diversity, what it is and why it's so important. But Star Trek had an incredible framework for it as far back as 1968. IDIC, infinite diversity in infinite combinations. I'm gonna share this framework and concept and show you how to apply it in your workplace and in your daily actions. And I get to do that by sharing the seventh episode of the first season of the animated series, The Infinite Vulcan. The Enterprise is approaching a new planet, Phylos. Sulu, Spock, and Kirk are on the surface investigating. They find unique plant life, flowers that walk and move. They also locate a small town that has a building generating a lot of power. Sulu, a trained botanist decides to pick up the mobile plant and it stings him. Oh, must have been a thorn. And then they head off towards the building to investigate. They find a technologically advanced location with force shields and other defenses for the planet and the building in particular. As they search through it, Sulu, you know, the dude who just got stung by a plant, shockingly drops to the ground. He's been poisoned. And out of nowhere, the indigenous people show up, the Philosians. The speaker's name is Agmar and says that they can help. Now, this is a moment where they really lean into this being a cartoon. These beings are of botanical origin. And thank you, Dr. McCoy, for brilliantly helping us understand just what that means. Intelligent plants? Agmar explains the Philosians are a peaceful people, and then they cure Sulu. Humans have been to Phylos before, apparently. Egmar says they came about a generation ago. They brought a disease that nearly wiped them out. The human that came helped them to cure it, but many, many Philosians were lost. It must have been like a plague. And now they're sterile. They're a dying race. And then, out of nowhere, plant-based flying dragons attack. <laughs> yep, totally out of nowhere. Kirk tries to phaser one, but there's a weapons deactivator in effect and their phasers won't work. These dragons swarm everyone, holding them down with their tentacles until Kirk says, Something tells me we've just been used as a diversionary tactic. Then the vegan dragons fly off with Spock and Agmar says, The master has searched many years to find a specimen like Spock. Apparently, apparently Spock is meant to serve a greater cause for, for their master? Well, Kirk, as Kirk will do, tells Agmar to release Spock, but then, do you remember when I said we were going to really lean in to this being a cartoon? Well, 
<laughs> Here we go. A super tall, giant human wearing, I don't know, toga pants or something, comes out as the Philosians hail him as master. I am Dr. Stavos Caniclius V. He explains that Spock is lost to them. They're never going to get him back. Tells them to return to the Enterprise and be on their way. Then we get the closest thing they ever say in Star Trek to the old cliche. Beam us up, Scotty. On the ship, they do some research. They discover that this Caniclius was an evil doctor during the eugenics wars. He and his master race concepts were found to be anti-humanistic, and he was banished from Earth. That might explain how he ended up on Phylos. See, the eugenics wars took place on Earth from 1992 to 1996, meaning... He'd be over 250 years old. So Kirk pieces together that this guy has been cloning himself, likely five times so far, to continue his work. Scotty and McCoy, in the meantime, are developing a toxin and a delivery device for that so that they can incapacitate the Philosians and hopefully rescue Spock. They head down, ready to go. On their way to the main building, they find a hangar full of ships. Looks like they're getting ready to go on a trip. They find and capture Agmar. And hey, I, I feel like I really need to call this out here. It's not my recap that's hard to follow and choppy. Like, this is the episode. This episode just weirdly jumps from scene to scene. Frankly, I don't think it's edited all that well. But that's just me and my ivory tower. Well, anyway. They capture this Agmar, and he starts to explain why they took Spock. The Vulcan human blend of wisdom, sense of order, durability, and strength is the finest the master has ever found. He's to carry on the Philosians' work, finding a way to keep their race alive. Agmar then takes them to see Spock. When they find him, he's unconscious and dying. Caniclius comes out, and he introduces... Spock too. Yep, it's exactly what you're thinking. A massive, giant version of Spock. No toga pants, though. Just, just wearing his uniform. Toga! 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 They are transferring Spock's consciousness from normal Spock to Spock 2. Because big old giant Spock will apparently <laughs> be better somehow than normal Spock for Caniclius' purposes. I mean, for, well, some reasons, I'm sure, I, I guess. Well, back on the Enterprise... Scotty and Uhura are working hard to transfer ship's power so they can send a communication to the landing party. That force shield and those defenses are blocking them. When they finally get through, they let them know that Caniclius had writings near the end of his time on Earth saying that his purpose for creating a master race was to enforce peace on the planet. Kirk tries to reason with Spock, too. What is the logic in letting a man die for the sake of creating his duplicate? Though maybe, <laughs> maybe the question should be, hey, where's the logic in making giant versions of you, right? But, but hey, I didn't, I didn't write this one. So, Caniclius. Caniclius explains that he, Spock, is the beginning, or Spock 2, <laughs> is the beginning of a master race. I guess being like 20 or 50 feet tall or whatever is one of the requirements of this race. But Kirk also takes on Caniclius, but now, now he's going to use a little more information. All this has been a waste, Caniculus. There has been peace in the Federation for over 100 years. That is a lie. Caniclius has a really hard time believing this. We learn that the Philosian ships that the landing party found earlier were meant from their predecessors to invade the galaxy and impose 
peace. But Caniglius talked them out of it for the time being. He said that for them to be successful, they would need a master race to enforce any peace that they imposed. So now Kirk goes and tries it against both of them. Like as perfect as Spock might be for this master race, his ideology is not going to allow him to enforce a peace. Now this finally causes a breakdown. Spock 2 hits normal Spock with the Vulcan mind touch, copying his consciousness to him and saving his life. Remember, Spock 2 and Kirk are now aligned and they talk Caniclius into using his and Spock 2's expertise to cure and sustain the Philosians, with both of them staying on Phylos until their natural deaths. To bring life is at least as important as bringing peace. Caniclius agrees, so Kirk and crew, along with normal Spock, return to the ship, but not but not before a really awkward and probably really super offensive exchange between Kirk and Sulu about being inscrutable. Yeah. So that happens and ends with Sulu winking at the camera. Weird. Taken off the field for the transition from the original to the animated series, Walter Koenig or Chekhov wrote this episode. Now, sadly, this was his only contribution to the animated series at all. And the rumors are that the writing process was an absolute nightmare for him. Given the jarring nature of the story flow and some inexplicable plot points, I'd say this totally checks out. Come to Quark's Crisis Run. Come right now. Don't walk. Run! Has this ever happened to you while you were watching Star Trek? Aaron, honey, pause, pause, pause. Why did Nog just say their first set of ears? I mean, it's weird that he didn't call them lobes. Okay, but first set? Did Ferengi lobes fall off and they grow new ones? Or are they supposed to grow in layers? I don't know. I've never heard anything about it. Ha ha ha. Wait, why do you think their ears would fall off? Is there some kind of animal that really does that? Listen to me, biologist and frequent episode pauser Kelly Voss. And me, lifelong Star Trek fan and engineer Aaron Strom. As we share the conversations we were already having at our house anyway. The Spinal Frontier comes out on your favorite podcatcher every second and fourth Monday. You can follow us at Spinal Frontier on Twitter and Spinal Frontier Pod on Instagram for updates. Okay, honey, you can press play. I have a question for you. What is one thing that separates truly great leaders from the rest? Like, what are they doing that you aren't? The answer? Effective leadership coaching. But here's the thing. It's really hard to find a coach that you will work well with, that you'll get along with, that will, that will understand your needs. And that's where the Starfleet Leadership Academy comes in. That's right. If you're a leader or even an aspiring leader that wants to develop and build your skills so you can benefit your teams and you want to do that in a fun and engaging way, reach out today. Visit starfleetleadership.academy slash contact to schedule a time with me, Jeff Aiken, and find out if coaching from me personally is right for you. That's starfleetleadership.academy slash contact. Thanks. Live, lead, and prosper. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. 
We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I do carry a select line of unique artifacts and gemstones indigenous to this region. As the story goes, Koenig was hired to write the episode, and, and he did. He wanted to talk about cloning and explore the philosophies behind and around it, which, I mean, it sort of gets a mention in the final version that we got to see. A little. But like happened to a lot of scripts, both on the original series and the early Next Generation, Gene Roddenberry got his hands on it and made Koenig add to and rewrite it countless times. Walter Koenig described this as an unbearable process and ended up declining an ask to write future episodes for the series. But he did get one fun little dig in. He was bitten by the Retlaw plant. See, Retlaw, that's Walter backwards. Uh, eh, eh, see what he did? That's pretty good. But my big question on this one, and it is big, is why did they have to be giants? <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is animated. It's a cartoon, so have fun, right? Go wild. Go do whatever. But, but why? <laughs> why? Maybe, just maybe, it was all to set up a callback in the Lower Deck second season episode, Kayshawn, His Eyes Open. Hmm? Maybe? Near the end of the episode, when they realize Caniclius is actually after peace, Kirk says that there's been peace for a hundred years. Now, to be fair, he could have meant within the Federation itself, like between the Vulcans and Andorians, you know, stuff like that. But to be that guy about this and acknowledging that Discovery creators Brian Fuller and Alex Kurtzman were four years old and a newborn, respectively, when this episode first aired, the Federation Klingon War, <clears throat> excuse me, the Federation Klingon War ended just 13 years before this encounter on Phylos. <laughs> All right, I'm done being Mr. Pedantic. Sorry. On to some fun stuff on this one. Early in the episode, Sulu is interested in the mobile plant life goes to pick it up. Now, in the first season of the original series that aired, The Man Trap, we learned that Sulu was a botanist. So he understands plant life. He knows how to deal with plants that you don't know or understand. Still, he picks it up and Kirk, <laughs> Kirk eggs him on. We always encourage our officers to make friends with the natives. Yeah, I'll bet you do, Captain Kirk. <laughs> Seems he and Will Riker really leaned into that one. And in this one, we get a little look into McCoy's family history. One of my great-great-granddaddies way back had the finest garden in the South. Had to scramble around a little bit to find the materials, but I've got his recipe brewing now. Did his, did his grandpa work for Monsanto? Like, did a McCoy come up with Roundup? Well, all in all, this was an interesting idea for an episode, I think. I'd sure like to see Koenig's early drafts and see where he saw it going originally. But sadly, this one was Roddenberried. And we got the confusing mess that we just sat through. Command codes verified. Diversity. If you've stepped out into open air even one time in the past 30 or so years, you've heard about it. But do you really understand it? Is it anything more to you? Then a checkbox on a job application or a metric on some corporate dashboard? For the flaws that Gene Roddenberry had managing writers and behaving appropriately in the workplace, he absolutely had a vision. He introduced a topic that came up in this episode back in 1968 
idic, infinite diversity in infinite combinations. I'm going to talk about this groundbreaking concept, at least groundbreaking for the late 60s, and what it means for you and your workplace. Before that, though, I talk quite a bit about empowered and enabled work teams. Well, and here in this episode, we get to see what a very effective empowered work group looks like. And I'm going to talk you through what it takes for you as a leader to help make that happen. The Starfleet Leadership Academy is supported by listeners just like you. Click the link in the show notes to support the ongoing production of this podcast. An empowered and enabled work team or an intact work group, a self-directed team. There's a lot of different names, but at their core, they're the same thing. A group of people that know what is expected of them, they know how to do it, and they do it. <laughs> they don't rely on a supervisor or even a lead necessarily to tell them what to do. They understand the constraints, like the policies and the rules, and they know how to work within them. Frankly, developing these teams should be the goal of every single manager, leader, and team in any workplace. But to start, let's break down what happened in the scene here. Kirk, Spock, and Sulu are on the planet's surface under a protective force shield, so standard communications aren't going to reach them. On the Enterprise, they've learned new information about Caniclius that they believe is mission critical. It can literally save their lives and get Spock back. The first indication we get that this is an empowered work team is when Scotty decides to redirect all ship's power, except environmental controls, to forming the communications beam. This is a great example of how to share potential solutions. First of all, technically, from a technological standpoint or an application standpoint, this should work, right? Like, more power should be enough to maybe get through the shield, at least based on my understanding of Trek tech. It is a mass of plasma energy contained within discrete boundaries by an outer covering of silicates, actinides, and carbonaceous chondrites. Second... He's already weighed the potential consequences and has an idea of how to mitigate them. He keeps the life-sustaining systems online and focuses all the rest. Now, to be honest, this action isn't unique to empowered work teams. Ideas like this come up all the time. The first signal that this is something special is that Scotty actually says the idea out loud. In a traditional, more command and control environment, most people would have the thought, keep it to themselves, and then go complain to others in the break room. But in that traditional environment, if that idea was spoken, if someone had the courage to say it, one of three things will likely happen. One, it's just going to get shut down. Two, it might happen exactly as Scotty voiced it. Or three, <laughs> it gets sent off to some committee or work group for consideration. Does that hit a nerve for you there? <laughs> I know it does for me. But this is Kirk's enterprise. It's full of competent people with clarity in what their mission is, and they are empowered and enabled to work to achieve that mission. So what happens is Uhura questions his order on the bridge in front of everyone. Mr. Scott, you're risking a total drain of our dilithium crystals. And it's okay. In fact, it's more then okay, it's expected, and ultimately, it leads to a safer, more controlled approach to the solution. She points out 
that they'll burn out their dilithium crystals if they do this for too long, which will leave them stranded. So she recommends putting a time constraint on it. They talk through the idea out loud in front of everyone. Total transparency. No personal ego attached. Uhura never questioned Scotty. She wanted to improve upon the idea, the solution, not, not question or put down Scotty in any way. And that's exactly what they did. They implemented it. They got the message delivered and helped resolve the crisis on the planet. A key thing here is that they didn't have to ask for permission. They talked through it, agreed, and did it. Zero bureaucracy. In your workplace, when a problem or a challenge comes up, does it look like this did on the Enterprise? Or does it look more command and control? Sir, yes, sir! When someone has an idea, or you have an idea, is it shared or is it kept quiet? And if it is shared, what happens to it? Does it go to committee hell? Is it ignored? Or honestly, maybe the worst outcome, does a manager just grab it and tell people to do it? While there are degrees of being empowered, it's not just a binary you are or you are not, but the key and the important part of all of this and that leads to being more empowered and to demonstrate that empowerment is public discourse. Having ideas questioned and talked through to find the best possible approach. I absolutely loved how publicly Scotty and Uhura talked through this and how they had zero ego attached to it. And the sense of psychological safety, because if I can't stretch a little bit, then it's, I'm going to be afraid to say, well, here's what I think. It was just about solving the problem. To make this happen, to achieve truly empowered work teams and people, there are three things that you, as the leader, need to focus on. Competence, clarity, and trust. L. David Marquet, who I've mentioned here before, and his team at Intent-Based Leadership break this down so well. I'll link an excellent, great video on this in the show notes. Now, these three things, they're not sequential. It's not doing one and then the other. You have to do all of these things. You are forming an equilateral triangle. You must develop competence in your team. They have to know how to do their jobs. We see this in the episode in that both Scotty, the engineer, and Uhura, the communications officer, know the ship's systems and their interoperability. You can develop competence through training, education, experience, exams, scenarios, short interval coaching, and on and on and on. Now, clarity, clarity is about information. What is the mission? What can we do? What can't? We do. What are the rules? The two keys to providing clarity as a leader are to provide information, not instructions, and to always think out loud. As a leader, when you talk, people listen. So talk through your thoughts. This provides clarity through your thought processes and ultimately through the information that you provide. And the big one. The one I talk about in detail in a lot of episodes, but specifically the 49th episode of the Starfleet Leadership Academy, Discovery's Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. And that's trust. You can have the most competent team ever formed with crystal clear clarity. But if you don't trust those people, you will add bureaucracy. Oh, don't you trust me? You will be a micromanager. In fact, the natural result 
of a lack of trust is micromanagement. These are the things to work on. Build competence, provide clarity, and build trust. Once you've done this, you will have wildly empowered work teams that will absolutely do amazing things. And to ensure those empowered work teams are the most effective and that they come up with the greatest possible ideas, you also need the people on those teams to be diverse and to be fully included. From here, I'm going to talk about diversity, but I want to be very clear. Here's me providing clarity. Diversity without inclusion is worthless. It's actually worse than worthless. It's a detriment to you, to your teams, and to your organization. Diversity without inclusion leads to tokenism at best and outright discrimination at worst. Now in Star Trek, one of the ways they flesh out this concept is through IDIC or IDIC. This was first introduced in the third season of the original series episode, Is There No Truth in Beauty? That's the one that introduced the Medusans, a race whose appearance is so incomprehensible to humanity that it causes insanity to even look at them. Typically, the only people capable of looking upon Medusans with success are Vulcans, but only with a special visor. In the episode, we're introduced to the symbol that shows up in a number of Trek episodes involving Vulcans from this point further, and Spock talks about the concept. But in this episode, they assume we know a little about it already, since this came out after the original series. Kirk uses it to show Caniclius that Spock would reject being identified as some kind of master race. You know the Vulcan symbol called the Idic. Infinite diversity in infinite combinations. So what is Idic? The symbol itself and its description provide a great definition. It's made up of a circle, a triangle, and a jewel. The triangle and the circle are two different shapes made of different materials, and they have different textures. They represent any two diverse things which come together to create truth or beauty represented by the jewel in the center. That's beautiful. The concept goes on to say that purpose, meaning, and beauty are only achieved through our differences. There was a commercial from a few years ago that illustrated this perfectly. A skilled pianist played one of Beethoven's most popular pieces, Moonlight Sonata, on a normal piano. And then, on a piano with each key tuned to the same note. See, that's Idic right there. That is the beauty that comes from our differences. Note that the pianist was competent, clearly. He had clarity. He knew exactly which piece to play and how to perform it. And he was trusted. He was on stage all by himself. So even with the three aspects that create an empowered work team, he couldn't create the beauty that was the goal of the piece. He needed differences to make that happen. He needed diversity. These are the things that you need for your teams. Competence, clarity, trust, and diversity. Diversity of thought, of experience, of education. Let's reimagine the back and forth between Scotty and Uhura 
if they had the same education, experience, the same thought processes. Scotty would have offered his idea, and Uhura would have agreed with it and executed. A few moments later, they would have burned through their dilithium and would have been stranded at Phylos. No good. Instead, even between just two people, we had multiple dimensions of diversity or intersectionalities that led to looking at the problem and the solution differently. It led, it led to a better outcome. Think about this when forming teams. A group of similar people will drain all the dilithium. While a team built on the concept of ITIC will most often solve your problem and do it in a very creative and very effective way. Did you know there's an online store where you can get cool stuff like shirts, notepads, coffee cups, and more with the Starfleet Leadership Academy logos and pictures? Yeah, just visit starfleetleadership.academy forward slash store to order yours today. And when you do, take a picture and share it with me. You can send it to me on Twitter at SFLA Podcast and most other social media at Jeff T. Aiken. That's Jeff T. as in toga pants, A-K-I-N. Computer, what are we going to watch next time? Working. It's the 24th episode of the fourth season of The Next Generation, The Mind's Eye. This is the Zoolander episode of TNG. The Romulans capture Geordi LaForge and condition him to assassinate some big shot Klingon. This is an action-packed episode focusing on LaForge in an early installment of the Chief O'Brien Must Suffer trope that we see so often in Deep Space Nine. This is going to be a fun one. And until then, Ex Astra Scientia! Hey Brent, have you ever seen Babylon 5 before? Babylon 5? You mean that show from the 90s? Yep. No. You want to watch it for the first time? Let's do it. Babylon 5 for the first time. Not a Star Trek podcast. We are two veteran Star Trek podcasters watching Babylon 5 for the first time. We're searching for Star Trek-like messages in the series and deciding if we should have watched it sooner. You can find us on Good Pods, YouTube, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Babylon 5, for the first time, not a Star Trek podcast. Electric Acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement. Inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast.
Electricast.